welcome to episode 1979 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I was up at 5 a.m. for Japan versus China, so <laughs> drag it a little bit yeah. now, but worth it. Boy, WBC's been fun so far, right? Oh, We've got man. Luis Castillo collision catch for Panama. You had a riveting Australian upset of Korea, yeah. which ended with a Tommy Edmund caught stealing and also featured a play in the seventh where a Korean runner celebrated himself off the bag after a double and was tagged out astutely. And then you had Shohei Otani's nice two-way game against China with a beautiful Lars Newpar catch. So it's been a nice one or so day demonstration of why everyone should be watching this tournament. It has been just, you know, Ben, a real treat. It has just been a real treat. Mm -hmm. And as I watched, as I watched a a guy celebrate himself off the bag, (laughs) I thought, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But my my main takeaway from the WBC so far has been, oh, yes. It's just a really great, it's a really great good time. And I hope that everyone is enjoying themselves. I will admit to the following, Ben. I did not watch Otani's miraculous, wonderful game. Would have been 3 a.m. for you. Yeah, it was 3 a.m., you know, (laughs) and um, I know how much sleep I need to both get my uh, work done and also not be just a horrifying monster to everyone around me. (laughs) And so I prioritize them, you know, over my own enjoyment. That's really Mm -hmm. the takeaway from this. But it was really nice to wake up to the alert in the morning and be like, yeah, still got it. He still got it. (laughs) He does, yeah. I felt, I mean, watching it, I I felt pity, really, for (laughs) players on the Chinese team because, you know, that's a tough assignment. I mean, the atmosphere is amazing, of course, watching that game in Japan. And, of course, uh, you have the home crowd that is uh, completely silent while the opponents are batting and then just, you know, making a ton of noise while Samurai Japan is batting. And just I was tapping my foot the whole game with the the chanting and the music. It's so much fun. We see what we miss out on when it comes to coordinated rooting really in U.S. uh, MLB games. But at first I just felt bad for China because uh, they don't get to face uh, Shohei Otani caliber pitching, right? Right. So, I mean, that's just, it's tough. So at first it was tough to be like, well, am I going to celebrate Shohei Otani's success or am I just going to feel bad for the people he is picking on here who really are, are not prepared to face this assignment? It was actually a close game until the end. It ended up being... 8-1 8-1 in favor of Japan. But up until the eighth or so, it, it was close. So they really did keep it competitive. But it was just fun to see Otani doing his thing, obviously, and the atmosphere there and getting to see Murakami and Newt Bar being embraced by that audience as much as anyone. Yeah. So it's just, it's been a ton of fun. And I think upsets are a feature, not a bug of the yes. WBC, right? And so Australia over Korea, I mean, it's, uh, it's not the miracle on ice necessarily. But it's uh, a lot of fun, right? So it's just been a good advertisement for this tournament. Yeah, I think that you don't have to be in the championship for it to be an endorsement of the exercise, right? Like Mm -hmm. there is stuff to be enjoyed all along the way. And so far, it has been a great delight. So yeah, and we haven't even gotten to see the US and the Dominican Republic and everyone as we're speaking now, Venezuela, etc. So yeah, a lot 
lot more good stuff in store. So I hope everyone is paying attention and we'll continue to banter about it at least from time to time as it goes on. And meanwhile, back in boring old spring training, I did want to note that there is some interesting data coming out, right? Like preliminary, but not necessarily premature findings about the rules changes and the effects of them. So Jeff Passan tweeted out some summary stats of uh, this spring training compared to last spring training. And I do want to caveat this and, and caution everyone. I mean, we're just, uh, what, a couple weeks into spring training games, right? So we don't even have a full spring training yet. And I assume that Jeff was comparing to the full last year schedule. So that's one caveat. He was comparing to spring training, not to the regular season, but still the full grapefruit and, and cactus league results, presumably not through the same date or number of games. And there are also other differences, right? I mean, we have a WBC this year, so yeah. some players were preparing differently and are now right. absent. And last year was coming off of the lockout, too. So just inconsistent conditions. But still, (laughs) pretty suggestive what we have seen thus far. So looking at the stats he published here, time of game, three hours, one minute last year, two hours and 36 minutes this year. That's down 25 minutes. Runs per game, pretty consistent, 10.6 last year, 11 this year. Stolen base attempts per game, 1.6 last year, 2.4 this year. And he didn't have this, but I believe also the success rate is up, right? Or mm. so that's unusual because you know usually you see more attempts. That means probably you're you're making some riskier attempts and right. you're going to get caught more often. But this year, those things are moving in conjunction, where we're seeing more attempts and a lot of success, which is unusual. Also, strikeout rate down a little bit, twenty three point nine percent last year, twenty three point one percent this year, and. BABIP on ground balls is what he had here, 235 last year, 258 this year. And our former guest, Louis Paulus, he also wrote something about this in his newsletter, The Lose Letter. And he looked at the BABIP and he found that, again, thus far, it's at like 320 overall, which would be the highest on record in spring training, which goes back to like 2006 or so with easily available data. So that's notable too. And and Louis actually looked at just uh, through the same point in spring training, he found that it doesn't typically change all that much over the course of the spring training schedule. If anything, mm. it tends to get higher toward the end of spring training. So again, we can't reach any conclusive uh, takeaways from how these rules changes will work. And obviously, players are just getting used to them and they will continue to adjust and there will be back and forth. But I am a big believer in studying spring training to get some sense of what the regular season will look like because often there is a correlation in a lot of metrics with that. So this is uh, good news, I think. It seems like it's working as intended, perhaps even better than I expected to in some areas. Yeah, I think that like there have obviously been hiccups. There are guys who are still figuring it out. I think a lot of the guys who are still figuring it out appear to be like 
trying to engage in active experimentation, right? It yeah. is not a, I can't make sense of this. I can't adapt. It's like, okay, where are the boundaries? What are the wrinkles? Like, where are the little creases in the game that I can try to like, you know, work some magic? So I'm encouraged by that piece of it that that most most guys seem to be where they are running afoul of the rules. It was either very early, and I say that again, like I agreed with <laughs> not like we're done with spring training. We've only been doing this for a little <laughs> while, but like it was either early in the spring. We're still in the spring, but even earlier in the spring than we are right now or it's it's scherzer trying to figure out like what can i do and not mm -hmm. do it's you know it's chris sale getting a violation but then being like no this is good like now i get it you know so there's that piece of it and there was another piece of it that i was going to mention and it went clear <laughs> out my brain ben just like no longer in there uh <laughs> except to say that uh it seems good uh it seems like we are all adjusting in a way that is not overly disruptive and mm -hmm. yeah i found it that gives me a lot of hope that of all the ways that important games can end in a bad and or goofy way that these don't seem like they are going to particularly as we get deeper into the season and certainly once we've reached October this is uh, it seems very unlikely to me that we're yeah. like going to have a you know a playoff game end on a on a clock violation you know right yeah i do wonder whether we'll see any early season difference between players who were at camp all spring oh, sure, and yeah. players who were in the WBC I and are not too. playing under the new rules, right? Yeah. So they're not getting to practice that as much. And it leads to an interesting natural experiment, as J.J. Cooper of Baseball America pointed out, because there have been these WBC exhibition games right. where major league teams are playing in them, but there's no pitch clock. Yeah. And so comparing that to pitch clock spring training games you can see even there a disparity which is again interesting because you'd think that players might always be rushing along now that they know that they'll need to but it seems like you take away the pitch clock then immediately they're more relaxed and they know that they can do that so right. WBC is like our last look at uh, at least this high level baseball as it used to be played and then we will see something different come opening day but it seems like perhaps something improved so I didn't doubt that the pitch clock would work. I doubted maybe whether it would work quite as well as it worked in the minors. And there's still some question about that. But I had more questions about BABIP and the shift BAM and all of yep. this is interconnected. So again, it's hard to say, is this all the positioning rules? Is it something having to do with the other rules as well? It's tough to untangle all of those things. But directionally, it's in the direction that MLB wanted it to be. And I guess we'll see whether the stolen base attempts, uh, we reach kind of a happy medium or whether if attempts are way up and successes are up, then everyone decides actually it's too easy to steal bases now. And the idea of wanting to get more stolen bases in was kind of predicated on the idea that it would still be suspenseful when you were going to go and there'd still be doubt about whether you're going to be safe. So if it becomes almost a gimme, then maybe it's not actually more exciting to have them. But Anyway, so far so good, and early returns are encouraging. So we will continue to update you all as uh, more data is generated. Yep. Did you want to revisit our uh, topic with Sam on our last episode? <sighs> ben, I feel like I failed both of you. Uh, one, of, one of these is us all failing our listeners, to be clear. But I 
I feel like I failed you. And I realized that as we were recording the conversation, one of the conversations that we are going to be highlighting later in this episode on the Houston Astros with Chandler Room, which is I saw an amazing thing last year Mm. that I had never seen. And I didn't even, it didn't even, Ben, I was at the 18-inning Mariners-Astros game. Why was that not my answer? That was... (laughs) I mean, like, the triple play one is its fine. That ended mm-hmm. up being my strongest contribution, if we're being candid. That and the power outage thing. Like, that was where I really shone in that conversation. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, replacement level at best. But in terms of a thing, it was really, like, wild. And I believe, in some respects, unprecedented. I was there. I said to mm-hmm. all of them, in the smoke. I mean, you sort wrote of about in the smoke. Yeah. You know, I wrote about it. I wrote a thing. I wrote, uh, that might have been one of the only things I wrote last year that wasn't like, here are our playoff odds and here's our staff predictions. And <sighs> So I'm disappointed in myself and uh, I want to I wanna own my mistake, which is that. And then I was messaged by, I think we can say friend of the show, Zach Buchanan, who writes for The Athletic, and I hope will not feel as if I am betraying a confidence. But he listens to our episode, and he could not believe that not not a one of us answered with Randy Johnson hitting the bird. Yeah, yep, that's a great one. And that's mm-hmm. I mean, like not for the bird to be clear. Mm-hmm. Pretty bad day <laughs> right. for the bird. I hope that you know, like it was so it was literally so fast that I mm-hmm. hope the bird. I don't yeah, think the bird I, suffered. I, right? I doubt the bird felt anything or was even aware that it was about to become a blooper slash highlight for the ages. Yeah. So. But really a remarkable moment, you know, and one that has been remarked upon. So, Zach, you are right. We are all bums for not thinking (laughs) of that. But, but I feel the most embarrassed that I did not remember my own experience from not even a year ago. So here I am, hat in hand, to say I messed up, but I hope that, um, Everyone else had as much fun watching that uh, game as I did and mm-hmm. uh, can can forgive me for my oversight. It was a uh, stressful time. <laughs> it was a busy day. It was a wild experience. And uh, it's one that I'd like to say I'd never forget, except for the part where I literally did that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Well, we were trying to think of unprecedented things that we had seen in games or that had happened in games. And I guess you could say that other birds have been hit by other kinds of throws, but not quite in that way and not Not quite quite captured on camera in a a snuff film the way that that poor bird was. But. Is that the only, I'm going to ask a question and I don't want a a single email response about it. This is me asking it idly. You don't have to. I listened to the you're wrong about about snuff films. And in that episode, they they wondered like, does this thing exist? And now I'm realizing that even though that episode was years ago and one of the co-hosts has moved on, I should message them and say, here is one, but it's sports and that's not something they're really into. So that's why they probably didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've got a couple previews for you today. As you mentioned, we will be starting with the Astros and Chandler Rome of the Houston Chronicle. I teased on an earlier episode, I think, that we would be previewing the Rays today. We had a guest scheduling rearrangement, so we will get to the Rays next time. Yes. So the Astros, Fangraphs, playoff odds, uh, and projected win total 89.7. 
division odds of 57% and playoff odds of 82%. So even though they're returning much of their roster and still have uh, high expectations, you know, maybe perhaps a, a little more competition, at least in the division this year, perhaps some vulnerabilities there, still a very strong team. And then after the Astros, we will be talking to Jason Mackey of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about the Pittsburgh Pirates, projected for 73.7 wins and a 2% chance to win the Central with a 4.5% chance to make the playoffs. So a little bit of a disparity there. <laughs> We're getting into the, the end stages of the preview series here where there is a wide gap between our good team and bad team, yeah. so to speak, for the day. So those are our previews, and I'll do the same little trivia exercise that I started last time. Same three questions, which I will answer at the end of the episode. Tell me which team has the better head-to-head record all time, Astros or Pirates, in their head-to-head matchups, and then give me the all-time highest war-getting batter and pitcher who have played for the Astros and the Pirates at any point in their career. So anyone who has played for both of those teams at some point, highest war getting batter and pitcher, and then the first pitcher and batter to play for both teams, to have checked off both of those boxes. And we will follow up with those answers at the end. And now we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Chancellor to talk about the Astros. All right, let's talk about the Houston Astros. So we've done that some already this offseason, but now it's time to preview the season. And to do that, we are joined by Chandler Rome, who covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle. Hello, Chandler. Welcome back. Ben, Meg, how are you? We're doing well. So before we do the previewing, I guess we should do some reviewing of the offseason, right? And maybe before we even get to the offseason, we then have to rewind a little bit to the relationship uh, among the the no love lost triangle of Jim Crane and James Click and Dusty Baker to some extent so this was unusual right to have some discord with such a successful team a team that won the world series to lead to a parting of the gm immediately after that success so what have you learned and reported about the relationship between Crane and Click, between Click and Baker, between Baker and Crane, <laughs> just uh, all the various permutations? What led to Click's departure? Yeah, it, it was odd. And it, and it started simmering even before the reports. You know, I started reporting about it in September, but there was even whispers in spring training that that things were not well that James Click was in the last year of his contract and that in all likelihood he would not return. And I think it honestly, it boils down to just philosophical and, and personality differences. Um, Jim Crane is a very aggressive owner. He's one that does give resources and he's he wants to win, but he is aggressive. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, James Click went on a radio hit. He did a weekly radio hit on the Astros flagship station on their morning show. And he said something, and I believe it was late in September. They had clinched, they had definitely clinched the division, 
they had definitely clinched home field, but they were still the, the franchise record for wins in a season is 107. And they were still in pursuit of that. And James Click said something on the air and, and he did. I don't think he meant it to mean anything more, but it just kind of shows where the relationship was. He, he described Jim Crane coming up to him and asking, well, when are we going to get to 107 wins? When, when are we going to tie the record? And when are we going to break the record? And, and James Click was just kind of like, I mean, we, we've, we've secured home field through the playoffs. We've won the division, but that, that's just kind of how Jim Crane is wired. He, he's a very aggressive owner. He likes to win maybe a little bit too much. And, you know, I, I think he wanted a general manager that, that was in line with his aggression. And, you know, James Click was very measured in, in how he went about his processes. You know, he, he sought a lot of opinions from his staff, from the people around him before rendering, you know, decisions. And I, I think Jim Crane wanted someone that was a little, just a little bit more bold. And, you know, you say that, and <laughs> there was a pretty bold trade in place at the trade deadline to acquire Wilson Contreras for Jose Urquidy and Dusty Baker and Jim Crane stepped in and nixed it. So I do wonder how those two things can align. But nevertheless, that, that <laughs> Not was... Not to mention the, the bold predecessor who was fired in disgrace. <laughs> but... Yes, that, well, that, that too. <laughs> we, we, could, we could talk for a while about this. but So it, it, it certainly... Jim Crane got very involved in baseball ops toward the end. Jeff Bagwell had a, became a very, very heavy sounding board for him. Reggie Jackson a little bit to a lesser extent. And it, it was an untenable situation. And it always seemed headed for divorce. And they just so happened to win the World Series, uh, making the divorce a little bit harder. And, you know, I, no one was surprised. I, I certainly wasn't surprised that James Click left the organization. But I, I think the way it was handled, you know, Jim Crane sending James Click to the general manager's meetings as a lame duck, them extending Dusty Baker and holding a press conference about it and not telling James Click while he was at the general manager's meetings that Dusty Baker had been extended and they were going to hold a press conference. It just, it, it rubbed a lot of people in the industry the wrong way. Um, and it just was a kind of a fitting into a marriage that just never seemed like it got off on the right foot. And at least initially, there were reports that Dusty might not be back either, right? That there'd been some acrimony there. Obviously, he ended up re-upping. So what's the state of the Crane-Baker relationship? Or what was the state of the Click-Baker relationship, if we know? You know, I, I think personally, I think the two guys liked each other. I, I think, you know, James Click obviously had an immense amount of respect for Dusty Baker and what he's done. Uh, again, I just think they saw the game a little bit differently. They're, they're, they're two guys that were brought up in the game very differently. I mean, Dusty Baker, a lifer, former player, um, has seen everything you can see. And, and James Click, just not that. I mean, they, they were two different kind of guys. But they, they coexisted. I, I don't want to say it was an acrimonious relationship. I just think they had differences. They had some philosophical differences of how things should be done. And I, I think Jim Crane, at the end of the day, had a far better relationship Dusty Baker than he did any with James Click. So for most of the offseason, there was no general manager. How, if at all, did that affect how the Astros acted or didn't act? And then what ultimately led to the hiring of Dana Brown, late of Atlanta, which seems, that, at least in terms of his background and, and maybe philosophical alignment on the stats and scouts spectrum, if there is such a thing, seems like a, a bit of a break from Luno and Click. Yeah, so in the offseason, you know, they, they entered, from what I was told, they entered the offseason with two names that they were 
gung-ho about acquiring, and that was Jose Abreu and Wilson Contreras. Jose Abreu, it was a pretty, it was a pretty seamless fit. It was a pretty obvious fit for him. They had some of the worst first base production in the big leagues last year from Yuli Gurriel, who, while he had a wonderful postseason and was a clubhouse favorite, clearly had, had declined a little bit. And they went out and they got Jose Abreu. They sent uh, Jim Crane actually sent Jeff Bagwell, bench coach Joe Espada, and assistant GM Bill Furcus to Miami to kind of seal that deal and and sign Jose Abreu. Uh, Jim Crane, uh, about two or three days after parting ways with uh, James Click, uh, finished a $34.5 million extension for Rafael Montero, which uh, I'm still trying to figure out who they were bidding against to give Rafael Montero $34.5 million. Uh, <laughs> certainly a an odd decision there. But one thing Jim Crane said is they wanted to run the whole bullpen back. They wanted to run the entire pitching staff back, obviously minus Justin Verlander. So um, that was a priority for them. And then Wilson Contreras is kind of an interesting one. They they had a pretty lengthy, there was a pretty lengthy debate, you know, whether upgrading at catcher where Martin Maldonado will never win a, he'll never win a batting title, but he is so valuable in the clubhouse. He is the one of the unquestioned leaders of that clubhouse. You know, they had the best pitching staff in baseball last year. He deserves a large amount of credit for that. And, you know, he's he's a very prideful person. And he has told me, you know, I, I wrote it a couple of weeks ago that he would he would have probably requested a trade. He would have probably not accepted a backup role on this team because he last year played through a sports hernia injury. He played through a broken hand for the final two months of the season and, and was a huge driving force to the Astros winning the World Series. And, you know, they they talked with Wilson Contreras. They were never going to go to five years where the, where the Cardinals ended up with him. But so I guess you could look at it and say they went one for two in their offseason without a GM. And then, you know, it seemed like at, Jim Crane waited to begin the interviews for his GM job, you know, until after all that heavy lifting was done. Dana Brown did not get a call from Jim Crane until like the second or third week in January, I believe he told me. So, you know, Dana Brown certainly brings one thing that neither Jeff Luno nor James Click did, and that's that's he played the game. And I think when you start getting into who are the influential factors in this organization, you know, Dana Brown has said he spoke to three people during the interview process. It was Jim Crane, Reggie Jackson, and Jeff Bagwell. He did not speak to any existing member of the front office None of the front office members were involved in the in the GM search as far as Dana Brown has led on to believe. So I think Dana Brown speaks their language. He he just he speaks a language that Jim that James Click and Jeff Luno just couldn't. So I, I think that was a, a selling point. And then you also look at it, you know, this is a team that has not had a first or a second round draft pick in 2020 and 2021. Their first and second round draft picks since 2017 have not inspired much confidence at all. And this is an organization where there's going to be a lot of guys up for that are coming up for free agency here. They've got to replenish their farm system with higher end prospects because their high end prospect capital is almost non-existent. So Dana Brown, a veteran of the draft, a veteran of player evaluation, a veteran scout, you know, they thought that he was probably the guy to to replenish the farm system to kind of get their draft in order because he's made, he's made no bones about it. Dana Brown is going to be very, very involved in the Astros draft process and procedure. And we'll see how that changes because with some of these guys coming up, Kyle Tucker, Framber Valdez, Alex Bregman coming up for uh, their contracts coming up here soon. And Jim Crane's unwillingness to do the big long deals that it may require to keep them. They're going to need to replenish that farm system with high end talent. 
he's going to be involved at the sort of head of that process, but do you anticipate there being any organizational shift beneath them in terms of the way that they approach scouting more generally? They obviously were on sort of the bleeding edge of reducing in-person scouting staff and opting for more in-office work, but do you imagine there will be some repositioning there? I do. And I do think, you know, James Click deserves some credit here too. He added six amateur scouts in his final off-season uh, as Astros general manager. So this this thought, and I don't know if it's a thought that pervaded the industry, but it is certainly a thought that, you know, Jeff Bagwell articulated at some point this winter that, you know, the Astros had gone too far into the analytics realm. You know, James Click was not this married to a computer analytic first guy. Like he he wanted more scouts in the ballpark. He added to their amateur scouting department uh, before he left. And I expect Dana Brown to, to continue that. Um, he's already added special assistant Russ Bovey, who is a, another veteran scout that's where it's been a scout for almost 40 years. And he's going to be heavily involved in the draft process. From what I understand, they are working together pretty well with amateur scouting director Chris Gross, who's run their last couple of drafts. And so I, I think those three are going to find a way to make it work. But yes, I, I do envision a, a more uh, augmented scouting staff um, going forward under Dana Brown. And then you mentioned Verlander's departure. I know you know, they have a number of guys who they might contemplate for extensions, some of whom you just mentioned, some of whom I imagine we'll talk about. Was there ever any thought of bringing Verlander back? I, I'm sure they knew he was going to opt out, but did they try to match uh, what he was offered by the Mets? I never ruled it out because Jim Crane and Justin Verlander are extremely close. And if there was going to be someone that they were going to kind of splurge a little bit on, I would not have been surprised at all if it was going to be Verlander. But they they just they weren't going to go to that level. I had heard Jim Crane had told people close to him after he parted ways with James Click that he he did not like the Scherzer deal and that the Scherzer deal he kind of, that kind of scared him a little bit and everyone kind of knew that Justin Verlander was going to get something in that realm. So I, I never ruled it out and they certainly talked. I don't think it was ever anything that that amounted to serious uh, negotiations, but. I thought it could have been a possibility, but you know, at the end of the day, they just weren't going to go that far. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you noted that Crane is aggressive. He's certainly aggressive in some ways, but when it comes to outspending other owners, not always, right? I mean, the Astros are, I think, 10th in projected payroll for this year. And given their success and their attendance, uh, you would think that they could go higher if he were willing to. And they've repeatedly allowed players to leave via free agency, whether it's uh, Springer or Correa or Cole or Verlander, right? And, you know, it's hard to argue with the results. And sometimes they have a Jeremy Pena just to slot in for Carlos Correa. And they have all the homegrown starters that they've replaced to Cole and now Verlander with. So that's a testament to their player development. But at the same time, it's hard not to think, well, we would still be better with Justin Verlander still around, even though we have lots of other good starters. So why has he drawn the line so starkly when it comes to signing players to, to really big contracts? Because, I mean, the biggest uh, Astros franchise free agent deal ever is, is still Carlos Lee, right? <laughs> like 2005? I mean, I know they've signed some players to bigger extensions, but they haven't really broken the bank for a free agent. Yeah, so in Jim Crane's ownership tenure, the longest free agent deal, the longest and most lucrative free agent deal was was... Josh Reddick's four-year, $52 million deal in, before the 2017 season. Now, now Jose Abreu, this, this offseason, they did you know, give a three-year deal 
worth fifty-eight and a half million dollars. So they they were there was something there, obviously that that rivaled the Reddick deal. But just in his ownership tenure, they have preferred to build their teams through trades, through draft and development, and, and they kind of address. Uh, they kind of go into free agency and kind of address their margins there. Um, you look at they've they've done you know two and three year deals. The extensions that they've done, the, the longest and most lucrative in Crane's ownership tenure is still Jose Altuve's five year, one hundred fifty one million dollars uh, signed in twenty eighteen. Jordan Alvarez got six years for one hundred fifteen million in the middle of last regular season. So. As far as why they've drawn the line, I just think that they're that Jim Crane is, is pretty dead set on he's never going to do the 10, 12 year deals. And you're starting to see the game trend more that way. And, and it does invite wonder whether they're going to be able to, to keep that philosophy so strong. Because look, you mentioned Jeremy Pena, and he had a wonderful season. But I mean, you can't just keep relying on and not every prospect is going to hit like that. And they don't have right now, they don't have those high-end prospects that you look at. And then if Bregman walks in two years, that they can bring someone up and just automatically replace Bregman. Same with Tucker. You know, we'll see how the Justin how the Justin Verlander West rotation goes this year, but their depth is not inspiring much confidence beyond the, the first four or five starters in their rotation. So um, there's going to be have to be some difficult questions asked just because of the way the game is going of the way last winter went when owners were giving years and money out like like it was no one's business and you know jim crane's going to have to perhaps push beyond where he's comfortable and you know dana brown who has been very very candid about his negotiations with these guys about extensions he spoke in spring training a couple of days ago and i asked him that question whether he had had conversations with jim crane uh, about extending further than he had been willing, than he had been previously comfortable, and he said yes that they have had conversations that Jim Crane is willing to go further, but it still sounds like seven is probably their max. So that could work with some guys, but when you start looking at Kyle Tucker, when you start looking at Alex Bregman, you start looking at the markets and what other guys have gotten, um, they may have Jim Crane may have to dig a little deeper, give a couple more years. Uh, if he really wants to keep uh, this core intact for a long time. Right. So that's what I was going to ask about. I guess it's not surprising that Dana Brown coming over from Atlanta has made signing players to extensions a priority. And of course, the Braves have signed some of those players to below market team friendly deals. And you can't always convince a player and an agent to do that. They did sign Christian Javier to an extension. And as you noted, they've been working on Tucker, Framber Valdez, et cetera. So is this very much just, hey, this is what's worked for us in Atlanta, and I want to try to do that here? And then, yeah, it seems like there would be a conflict between the desire to do that and then the willingness to spend what you need to in order to do that. Well, Dana Brown has certainly brought up the Braves and kind of how they, and Jim Crane has as well, about what the Braves did, how they were able to go and be aggressive with their young players and lock those guys up. But there has been kind of a shift in that. You know, it's been it's been interesting to listen to Dana and, and listen to how he's presented himself his first month or two on the job. You know, his first two or three public appearances, he came out as if they were going to extend all these guys tomorrow, as if it was getting done. And we're getting and I think he's since tempered. I think he's since, you know, this is guy. This is a guy that he's been in the game a long time, but he's still a first-year general manager, and he's going to have to learn kind of the nuances and the and kind of how the the job and negotiations go. You know, he was pretty vocal that you know in the con- in the context of the conversation we were having the other day about 
these eight and 10 year deals. You know, I did bring up that the Braves signed Austin Riley to a 10 year extension. They gave Matt Olson eight years and $168 million. And his quote on the record was Alex was the boss there. I don't know if I would have done those deals just because I'm not a 10 year guy. Hmm. So maybe there is a shift and maybe, maybe this has come from conversations with Jim Crane where Jim Crane has made it pretty known that he has a limit and they're not going to be able to go there. But you know, the, the Braves model and how they, did it was certainly something that appealed to Jim Crane. But I, I do think people have to remember too that Dana Brown did he did a lot of good work in Atlanta for drafting and, and securing young players, but he, he was the vice president of scouting. Like I, I'm not sure how much he actually did to get these extensions done. He just mentioned that Alex Anthopoulos was, you know, the the main driver and the and the boss over there. So I think it's going to be a learning curve and I think it's going to be something that you know, Dana Brown is already kind of tempered. You know, he, he said a couple of days ago that, you know, look, if we don't get them done, we still have them for three years. But as I think we all know, as these guys get closer to free agency, their price is only going to go up. Kyle Tucker's about to have a full season without the shift. Um, Fromber Valdez is about to be the unquestioned ace of the staff. And, you know, as they get closer to free agency, it's only going to get more expensive. It's only going to take more years. And you you do have to wonder if the if the ship has maybe already sailed in extending those two guys. So there's all of that future potential uncertainty. But when you look at the the depth chart of the Astros now, there's a lot of stability in this current group. As you're sifting through camp, where are the spaces on the roster where you see there being actual position battles? It, it was funny. Um, I think it was Mandy Bell came on here about the Guardians, and she was all and she said, "I can't believe all we have is the backup catcher battle." Well, <laughs> in Astros in Astros camp, we do have the backup catcher battle between Corey Lee and Jiner Diaz. Uh, Corey Lee, the their final first round pick before the sanctions, uh, he he went to Cal, and he certainly I think they view him as maybe the catcher of the future, a guy that Martin Maldonado can really take under his wing this year, uh, a, a far better defender than Jiner Diaz is, but Jiner Diaz. Just, just keeps hitting. Um, he hit his way onto the 40-man last year. They brought him up in September for a brief big league cameo. But with the way this team values defense and the importance now with the limited disengagements and the limited pickoffs, the importance of a, a strong throwing arm. Corey Lee's got one of the strongest throwing arms in minor league baseball for catchers. So I think he's probably got the edge back there to open camp, to open the, the team as to open the season, excuse me, as the backup catcher. And then there's another battle in center field that I, I don't know if we can call it a battle yet, but certainly Chaz McCormick, who, who made the, the heroic catch in game five of the World Series and kind of locked down that position toward the end of the season. Um, Dusty Baker stopped short of anointing him as the starter coming into camp. Jake Myers who never seemed like himself last season coming off of shoulder surgery. The Astros really mismanaged his season, quite frankly. They rushed him back from a minor league rehab assignment, despite Dusty Baker pleading with them to give him more at-bats. And he came up to the major leagues and just looked completely overmatched. And, you know, he's he's finally healthy. He's come to spring training. He's taken some really good swings early. He looks, he looks like the Jake Myers of old, the Jake Myers that, you know, really – Forced the Astros to trade Miles Straw in 2021, um, so there, there's a battle there. I think both, but the, I think both of those guys are going to end up making the roster. One is the fourth outfielder, and one is the starting center fielder. So you could see maybe a timeshare there. Not a platoon situation because both of them bat right-handed. But um, yeah, those are your two main battles. Other than that, you know, it's kind of funny. We walk in the clubhouse every day, and it's like, yeah, I mean, they added one new major league player in Jose Abreu, and 
everyone else is just kind of status quo. It's the same guys doing the same things, kind of just uh, kind of just going through the motions and kind of just ready for the season to start. Maybe we can talk about a few guys who are coming off of or dealing with injuries. So speaking of shoulder surgeries, Michael Brantley, what's his outlook? And Lance McCullers, who's dealing with an elbow issue. And then I don't know if this is an ongoing issue, but Jordan Alvarez was having some hand soreness, uh, which he's dealt with before. So is that an ongoing concern? I think all three are differing levels of ongoing concerns. You know, Michael Brantley was progressing very well. Um, they were very optimistic he was going to be able to get into Grapefruit League games here in a couple of days and, and on track for opening day. But he's been away from camp for the last four or five days with what the team's describing as a family matter. So he's tending to that. And that has kind of set him behind schedule to the point where Dana Brown acknowledged the other day that he may not, it may not be opening day. He may have to come back maybe that. In later in that week, maybe the next week. So um, that family matter has set him back a little bit. Lance McCullers Jr. is still not playing catch. Um, he told us on February 28th, I believe, that it would be two weeks uh, before he picked up a baseball, and he has still not done that. You know, certainly opening day is out of the question for him, and certainly um, you start looking at it and. April seems even more out of the question just because he's got to build up and, and everything like that. So he did say his UCL was intact. He's already had Tommy John surgery once. Um, it seems like just a, he, he classified it as a small muscle strain, but he is still not throwing a baseball. And Jordan Alvarez, as of today, March 9th, is still not swinging a bat. It's unclear what exactly is wrong with his hand. Uh, no one will give us a diagnosis. It's unclear what caused his hand to hurt. But as you mentioned, he did have pain in both hands at points last year. You know, Dusty Baker was asked earlier in spring, is this something that could be fixed with a surgical procedure? And he replied that the doctors told Jordan Alvarez he doesn't need surgery, he, that no procedure would fix it. So it may just be a matter of pain tolerance. It may be just a matter of getting through it. And maybe this is just a slow ramp up. Maybe this is just they're being extra cautious with him. But I mean, it's it's March 9th and he hasn't swung a bat. And you guys know, like once he starts swinging a bat, he's not going to get into Grapefruit League games the next day. He's going to have to do the, the, the prolonged progression of swinging a bat. And I, I think they'd be okay if he doesn't get a ton of Grapefruit League at bats, but the longer he goes without actually doing anything, you do have to wonder if if opening day could be in peril. So you never want guys to be injured, but you know having McCullers on the shelf, I think, really solidifies Hunter Brown's place in the rotation, at least for now. I know you reported that. What should Astros fans expect from him? Because if you just look at his line from last year, you're like, well, they've done it again, and he is a top 100 prospect, but you know, I think we aren't insulting Hunter Brown to suggest that he might not maintain an ERA below one. So what is what is the 2023 version of Hunter Brown going to look like? It's going to look like Justin Verlander, <laughs> but, <laughs> but smaller and younger. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Shout out to Michael Bauman, who wrote the story that I was meaning to write, that Hunter Brown is a Justin Verlander clone that gets Framber Valdez results, because yes. that is pretty much that is pretty much Hunter Brown to a T. He's going to throw pretty much the exact same pitches that Justin Verlander does, just get some ground ball contact. Um, the, the big thing with Hunter Brown, and this was even in the case last year um, when he was having his breakthrough, everyone, scouts and, and people in the industry were wondering, is, is he going to throw enough strikes to remain as a starter? And he did that last year in both AAA and his brief big league appearance uh, in September and into the playoffs. Um, but his first two Grapefruit League starts, you know, have not, 
gone that way. Um, and it's kind of reopened those old questions. He's thrown 73 pitches in his first two Grapefruit League starts, and just 38 of them have been strikes. Uh, he's walked five guys in those two innings that he's pitched. And again, it's spring training stats. You don't want to you don't want to draw you know rash conclusions off of spring training, but it certainly is not it's not great, especially when you kind of look at their depth because. Behind Hunter Brown, the depth is not really that inspiring. They have Brandon Belak, who I think they would be perfectly fine if he slots into the rotation and has to make four or five starts in a pinch. Um, but beyond that, they have Sean Dubin and J.P. France, neither of whom have thrown a, a pitch in the big leagues. And then they have Forrest Whitley, uh, the one-time best pitching prospect in baseball, who himself has not thrown a pitch in the big leagues, is entering his final minor league option year. And, and really just needs to prove himself as valuable to the major league team um, to, to solidify his roster spot. So, I mean, there's, there, there's three guys there that you certainly could see take off, but none that none that have established themselves by any means. So it does magnify Brown's importance. And, you know, he's going to have to throw more strikes. You know, I, I heard his first two Grapefruit League starts. One of the common themes is that he was working too fast, was that he was getting ahead of himself. Martin Maldonado, who caught both of the starts, kind of said that that Hunter was speeding himself up a little bit. He acknowledged after the first start that the pitch clock gave him some problems. Now, this was a guy that pitched in AAA for most of last year where the pitch right. clock where the pitch clock was in place. But, you know, he said that coming up in September to the big leagues and then to the playoffs where uh, both of those instances were without a pitch clock. He kind of forgot what it was like. And so this is an adjustment for him too. So he's got to throw more strikes. He's got to be around the strikes and his misses have to be more competitive. Um, I will say in his second grapefruit league start against the Cardinals, he, it, he was not spraying the ball everywhere. There, there were, the, the, the zone was a little bit tight, but they were misses. And if you're going to be that uncompetitive, like it's going to be hard for the umpire to adjust. So he's got to throw more strikes, but I think if he does that, you, you're looking at a guy that is built to, to throw 150, 160 innings, a guy that that's what his goal is. He wants to do that. He's certainly got the stuff. He's got the pitches to, to get through a lineup two and three times. You saw it last year. He was able to do it. It's just going to be a matter of harnessing it and, and maybe settling himself down a bit because I don't know if he's trying to prove anything in his first full big league camp. I don't know if he's getting antsy. You know, I don't know what it is. He's maybe got to slow his delivery down a little bit and, you know, really maybe find himself around the strike zone more. Speaking of the pitch clock, we're generally fans of the pitch clock at Effectively Wild, but it's not without its downsides. And one of them is the loss of Luis Garcia's delivery. I think we will all mourn it. How has he adjusted to the the new environment now that he can't rock the baby? It's pretty funny. Like he was like one of the main attractions the first couple of weeks in camp, and he he just kind of kept looking at us like we were crazy. And he was just like, <laughs> he was just like, guys, my delivery is just normal now. He, he, that's all he says is, I'm just I'm normal now. And when you look at it, it basically is that. And the way he explains it is, all he took out was the the arm motion, the rock, the baby, as you said. Like everything else, he just took that out, and everything else is the same as it's always been. And, his results, he pitched very well in his first two Grapefruit League starts. He's he's with Team Venezuela now for the World Baseball Classic, but it doesn't look like it's affected him at all. You know, I, I worry more when I looked at the pitch clock, certainly with him, you know, they called him in December. I think pitching coach Josh Miller called him in December and was like, hey, you're you're the poster child for this. So we probably need right. to, to, to work on this. And, and they they spent some time in December kind of taking that out and finding a delivery that worked for him. And it's worked well in the two great league starts, but the guy I worried about more 
who has had some close calls. He hasn't had any violations, but he's had some close calls with Framber Valdez, who, mm. as was reported a lot last year, especially during his ascension. His work with a sports psychologist, Dr. Andy Nunez, in the Astros system uh, was all predicated on stepping off of the mound, closing his eyes, breathing, really kind of settling the game down. And, and he just can't do that anymore. And he, he, it hasn't been a problem his first couple starts, but I'll be very interested to see with him when base runners get on, when he gets into tight spots, whether he's able to kind of monitor, tailor that those tendencies to fit the pitch clock. He was the guy, I mean, Luis Garcia got all the headlines for obvious reasons, but he was, Fromber was the guy that when the pitch clock came out that I was my first thought of, oh, this is going to affect him pretty seriously. And um, he has said that, you know, he's going to do his breathing on the bench now between innings. He's going to work more on some of like his breathing exercises and kind of his mental state on the bench between innings as opposed to being on the mound. And it's worked pretty well for him the first couple of Grapefruit League starts, but we'll see how it goes in the regular season. I wanted to ask about Pena, who we touched on before. He had a really interesting rookie season because started great, right? And then for a while was looking overmatched and maybe the league adjusted. And then he made some counter adjustments, which seemed to work really well. And then at the end of the season and obviously in the playoffs, he was a force again. And he appears to have shown up even more jacked than he was last year. So is the hope that he will just be sort of playoff Pena all season long? And what were the adjustments that have worked for him? That's the hope. So I know this is a Shohei Otani first podcast, and <laughs> Shohei Otani is actually involved in Jeremy Pena's adjustments. Um, he he was facing Shohei Otani in an at bat in September in Anaheim, and Pena had always had this leg kick with his front leg and his and his batting stance. And Otani had owned him all season to the point where Dusty yeah. would, would hit him. I mean, Otani owns pretty much everyone, but um, really owned Jeremy Pena to the point where Dusty would almost bat him ninth when Otani would, would pitch just to limit the exposure they got. And Jeremy Pena just the, – the, the coaches had been telling him to take the leg kick out, and it just clicked for him. Minute bat against Shohei Otani, he just stopped doing the leg kick. And that really did lead to his offensive breakthrough. It allowed him to to get ready faster. It allowed him to be ready to swing faster. It allowed him to be able to recognize pitches out of the hand earlier. And it allowed him to make better swing decisions because he was really susceptible to the slider down and away. He was being, you know, really bombarded with breaking pitches down in a way that he really couldn't lay off of. He had a huge swing and miss rate. And all of that really turned around the minute he took the leg kick out and you saw what happened in the playoffs. You saw kind of what it led to the World Series MVP. That is going to remain. He, he has not added the leg kick back this offseason, much to the Astros' delight. But I, I think his his season is going to be fascinating because we always talk about baseball as a sample size sport. But you know, everyone is just so was so fascinated with the small sample size he gave in the World Series and in the playoffs. Like that's a huge. It's a small sample size, but it's on the sport's biggest stage. So you can't really discount what he did there, but you do have to look back and see that he had a 289 on base percentage in the regular season, was right at a league average hitter. You know, and Dusty Baker, without really saying it, did did kind of acknowledge that when he said he's going to hit Michael Brantley second all season. And when Michael Brantley is healthy, Michael Brantley will be in the Astros lineup as the two-hole hitter and Jeremy Pena will bat seventh. And Dusty basically said, Pena's been good, but he ain't been good as long as Brantley. And, you know, that's, 
part respect to Michael Brantley, but part just what Jeremy Pena has to do to, to create more consistency because there was too much swing and miss. I mean, he struck out 135 times in the regular season. Um, part of that is just a, a young hitter needing to adjust. Part of it, too, I, I think this kind of goes on not talked about a lot with Jeremy Pena. He didn't play much in the minor leagues. You know, obviously the 2020 yeah. minor league season was canceled. 2021, he had a wrist injury that allowed him to only play 37 minor league games. So when he got in the July and August last year, he was really in the uncharted territory as far as amount of games played and workload. Um, so he 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 has said that he felt himself fatiguing toward the end of last season. Maybe the, the playoffs gave him a jolt of adrenaline that he ran on for three weeks. Um, but so he did some stuff with his body, as I think we've all seen, to, to make himself more durable, to make himself, you know, that can last throughout the whole season. And look, the Astros, I think if you ask anyone in their organization, he exceeded any expectations they had last season. They knew the glove was good. They didn't expect gold glove, but they knew the glove was very good. But he exceeded any expectations they had for him offensively last year. Um, especially in the playoffs. So he's a guy, too, that could benefit from the from the rules, uh, from the bigger bases and the limited pickoffs because he's sneakily the fastest guy on the team, sprint speed-wise. And he can steal a lot of bases, but he's got to get on base to steal bases. And, you know, a 289 on base percentage won't get it done. And Dusty, I know, is a huge fan of aggression. He wants him to uh, get on base in that seven spot. And he thinks that that seven spot's going to be the, uh, the the place where he can – you know, not have to do everything. Um, this is a lineup of superstars. Jeremy Pena doesn't have to be the World Series MVP every time out, but he needs to avoid a, a sophomore slump. And I think the Astros think he's uh, he's capable of doing that. Probably wasn't the way that the Angels envisioned ending the Mariners season, but I wonder if it's any comfort to them. <laughs> <laughs> So Pena, as we said, they just sort of slotted him in and replaced Carlos Correa to to some extent. But even though they have done this time after time, not always, but they have managed to find homegrown replacements for stars. How long can they keep doing that? We mentioned that the farm system looking a little more fallow than it has in a while. It's one of the lower rated farm systems. And in fairness to the Astros, a, a lot of their core contributors now were not highly rated prospects, right? I mean, Christian Javier and Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia, these were not top 100 guys and they've obviously panned out. So perhaps that can happen again. But there's been a ton of turnover, of course, in the Astros front office and their whole player development staff. So that pipeline that they were one of the leading teams in and, and one of the early adopters, is that still in place? Can they survive the brain drain? Is it still going to be a, a strength for them, player development going forward? Yeah, every time I answer this question, like I just keep thinking in the back of my head, there's going to be some Latin pitcher I've never heard of that's going to just burst and be pitching for this team in July. Yeah. I probably would say no, because like we kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, this is not a... This is not a farm system that has a ton of just bounce off the page, high-end talent. Obviously, Hunter Brown is a top 100 guy. They really, really like Drew Gilbert, their first-round pick uh, from last year from Tennessee. Jacob Melton, has their second-round pick, has played well. Has played well in a couple of Grapefruit League, big league, Grapefruit League game appearances. And they view both of those guys as, as kind of outfield cornerstones, as guys that could be fast risers. You know, Dana Brown even went on MLB Network and said that he challenged Drew Gilbert to come win the center field job this year. I don't think that's going to happen. He's only played seven professional games. 
Uh, but who knows with the Astros, um, you know, they've, they've had quicker pops before. But um, I, I think they need to see this draft class play a little bit. I'd be interested to see how Jacob Melton and, and Drew Gilbert do play this year. But this is what's going to create kind of the, the conundrum for Jim Crane. It's like, how many Jeremy Pena's are there? There, there probably aren't that many. Um, how many times can you rely on, you know, these guys to, to really hit. And, you know, let's, in fairness to Jeremy Pena too, he was not in any top, not that I see, he was a fringe top 100 guy on a lot of outside publications, but like we mentioned, he, he didn't play much. And so he came up and just, he hit. And, and that's, that's a, certainly a, a credit to them and they deserve the benefit of the doubt, but it's going to be something that I think their player development system, you know, they, they lost Ozzo Campo, to the Miami Marlins this winter. They, they still have Sarah Goodrum as their director of player development. They're doing some different things, but uh, I think it's certainly in line to be one of those farm systems that you know you, you could not not hear of a guy and all of a sudden, bam, he's, he's playing well. And, you know, let's take a look at Justin Dearden, who's really setting Major League Camp ablaze right now. $20,000 undrafted free agent signing out of Southeast Missouri State in 2020, who is certainly cementing a spot on the 40 man as a guy that's rule five eligible this winter, but there's talk that maybe he's, he could contend to make the opening day roster. And again, that's a guy that, you know, virtually out of nowhere, that's really popped for them. So they've got to find again, more high end prospects. They've got to get more guys that are ready made to replace the Tuckers, the Frombers, the Bregmans, if that happens, or, you know, Jim Crane's got to be comfortable going beyond that six year, barometer that he that he set as a threshold well you know probably that our closing question here is how do you define success this season it's the astros if they make the lcs every year they just won the world series <laughs> i guess it's probably easier to answer this question for them than for most teams but is there any non-obvious benchmark other than hey make the alcs win a pennant win a world series again <laughs> I mean, I think if you talk to them, it's win it again. It's win the whole thing again. They win the World Series again. I mean, they Dusty Baker always, and this was prior to him winning uh, last year. He always said, "If I win one, I might as well win two. and that's kind of been their that's kind of been their motto. Like, let's just do it again. So, yeah, I mean, it's tough to, and you never want to get into the the World Series or bust. Like, if you don't win a World Series, the season's a failure. But Right. The Astros have kind of reached that point where it kind of is like they, they've made the ALCS six years in a row. Like it, it's hard to say making the ALCS like, oh, that's a that's a great success that it's just kind of become expected. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think the only measure of like tangible success this year is probably winning a World Series. But there are some there may be some some players and, you know, some guys that can have personal success that would really you know, maybe one of Chaz McCormick or Jake Myers really breaking out and really solidifying center field, you know, maybe, you know, Christian Javier really taking that next step as a guy, he's only really had one full season as a starter, uh, maybe taking that next step as being an innings eater and being dominant as, as that long, maybe Hunter Brown, as we mentioned before, like those are kind of more of the personal successes that maybe they could look at if the season doesn't end in a world series win, but Make no mistake for the team that there is no more success other than winning the World Series. Winning fixes everything, as they say. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> you're welcome for the free plug, Evan. So you can follow Chandler's coverage of the Astros all season long at the Houston Chronicle. You can also find him on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Chandler. 
Thanks, guys. Okay, let's take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Jason Mackey of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette to discuss the Pittsburgh Pirates. Then they took us outside in our slippers and gowns to play basketball on the blacktop. The ball just bounced till it stopped. Are we high enough to clear these trees? I don't know. Are we high enough All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Jason Mackey, who covers the Pirates for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Hello, Jason. Welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. Good to talk a little buckos with y'all. So you had a lot of Pirates news to cover this winter by Pirate standards. It was an active offseason, not in terms of big dollar deals. This is still the Pirates we're talking about. But quantity-wise, a lot of additions, especially in the 30 and older veteran category. Vince Velasquez, who's a Pirates Twitter hype video we had some fun with, and Austin Hedges, Harleen Garcia, who's hurt now, Carlos Santana, Connor Joe, G-Man Choi, and of course, a Pirates fan favorite in Andrew McCutcheon and an effectively wild fan favorite in Rich Hill. McCutcheon is maybe in his own category, but what was the overall strategy here if there was a a unifying theme to these moves? Is this about veteran mentoring or avoiding 100 losses again or midseason trade bait or all of the above? Yes, yes, and yes, Ben, um, (laughs) would seem to be the the answer on that one. You know, in in a fourth one, and this seems basic, but, you know, like playing a more respectable brand of baseball. I know that's a sort of insane concept um, around here with what we've witnessed the past couple of years, but I mean, what they need to do here, and they're trying to do this, I believe this with the veterans, is build a bridge to their next wave of, you know, pretty good young kids. And they do have a decent amount of prospects. A lot of them were at double A last year. So it's basically, you know, how do we get a competent baseball team on the field between now and then? Uh, Austin Hedges would be a good example. Like, no, Austin Hedges is clearly not the future here. Nobody is believing that he's the future here, but he can mentor their two young catching prospects, Henry Davis and, and Andy Rodriguez, enough to get by. You know, they've got some decent young arms with Ruanzi Contreras, Luis Ortiz, even Mitch Keller. I'd throw him in the young guy group. He's still not that old. You know, you bring in a Rich Hill and hopefully he can work with them and has, and he's been really good for them. Carlos Santana, the same for some of their young Latin position players, uh, Rodolfo Castro, Neil Cruz, etc. So, I mean, you're trying to play a better, more respectable brand of baseball. Yes, there's certainly the understanding that some of these guys will be flipped at the trade deadline, you know, Hill being chief among them, G-Man Choi being chief among them. And I mean, they, they can't lose 100 games again. Pirates fans are a, a rather salty group, as you know, most people probably know they're upset at how this team is being run. I don't blame them, but I do understand the rebuild side of it. And sooner or later, you need to show progress in the rebuild. And I feel like that's right where we're at right now. So bringing in veterans to help mentor the young guys, and then hopefully to bring in contributors who might, you know, stick around for the the next brand of winning Pirates baseball is an important part of that rebuild. The other important part are steps forward from the young players who they anticipate to be a core part of that next good Pirates team. And there are a couple of guys who we could start with here, but I feel like we have to start with maybe one of the, the more singular baseball players just on the planet because of his frame in O'Neill Cruz. He had... <laughs> He had a year where he displayed a lot of the flash that made him so intriguing as a prospect and also some of the things that have raised questions about whether he can stay at shortstop, what he's going to be like as a hitter at the big league level. So 
What are your expectations of Cruz in the 2023 season? How can he advance his game and and therefore sort of raise the floor for the Pirates? All over the darn map is where I see this guy. (laughs) I don't know. He's talking about 30, 30, 40, 40, and I'm not sure he's crazy. He might make 25, 30 errors, and that might be on the conservative side. Like it's just defensively, he has work to do. He has all the raw, raw tools in the world, like... The dude stealing bases is so fun to watch. Him throwing the ball is so fun to watch. Um, How hard and far he hits the ball is so fun to watch. But, you know, he struggled left on left last year. He struggled with breaking stuff specifically. He struggled with swing decisions and sort of staying in the zone with, with, you know, where, where he's attacking pitches. So I expect a lot of variation, I guess, might be one way I'd put it. And, you know, there's just going to be all kinds of stuff from him. And I think it's good. I think he needs that. I think he needs a season where, you know, he's able to make some mistakes. Like, I think I do think he's going to be a bona fide star in this league. I really do. But I think it's going to take some time getting there. He's in a good organization for that and that, you know, he's not making a mistake that's going to cost anybody the pennant, clearly. But, you know, as a as the beat writer for this team covering them and, you know, you're looking for stories and things that get fans excited and interested or whatever. I mean, O'Neill Cruz is exhibit A, and he's such a freak and a fun topic around this team. And, you know, you kind of just don't know what you're going to get with him. It's going to be a little bit of everything. Well, and I would imagine that a big kind of looming question for him and for the organization is what position he's going to be playing long term. What is your sense of their commitment to keeping him at shortstop? And if he doesn't play there, where do you anticipate him going? Yeah, I think long term, they'd probably like him to wind up in the outfield. Yeah. Whether that happens, I don't know. I think what this year is going to be about for him, I mean, they have a weird outfield situation. And not to go off on a tangent, but I mean, right now, like Reynolds is probably going to stay. Um, Sawinski is somebody they expect to take a couple steps forward. They go out and bring in Andrew McCutcheon, Connor Joe, and they've got like 72 people on the fringe of their 40-man roster, and they have to figure out if anybody's any good. So I say that to say they don't really need to move O'Neill Cruz to the outfield right now. I think what this year is going to be about for him, he wants to play shortstop. He thinks he can play shortstop. Um, the way I'm sort of putting things together and reading the tea leaves, it's, okay, O'Neill, go out there. You're going to get 150 games at shortstop. Show us you can play shortstop. Now, if he can't field consistently, then I think they're going to readdress it after the season. And I look at him physically. I look at what he's done so far. I mean, he may be a major league shortstop. I mean, this guy can be an absolutely ridiculous major league outfielder if he wants to do it. Right now, he doesn't want to do it. And I feel like that might look a little bit different after a, you know 150 games of struggle if that's what happens. But I think... I do long-term see him probably moving to the outfield. So while we're on the left side of the infield, for now at least, let's talk about the other guy over there whose glove you do not need to worry about. That's Cabrian Hayes. But the bat is another matter and still something of a question. I know he played through some injuries last year, even though he stayed on the field more than he did in 2021. And the offense was roughly the same as it had been the previous season, significantly below average. So that promise that we saw in 2020, still waiting to see more of that. Will we? I don't think we're going to see the 2020 version of Key Brian Hayes, and I don't think we need to. I don't think anybody here is expecting it, but I mean, a sub 700 OPS isn't going to do it. And they they know that. He knows that. It's been weird watching the trajectory of his career because he does come up 24 games. I mean, he is absolutely unstoppable. Looks that way all through the 2021 spring training. 
hitting with power, hitting to all fields, this, that, and the other, injures his wrist, second game of the season, and really hasn't been the same player. Um, he was banged up with a few things last year, as you said, Ben, and you know, I, I give him a lot of credit. He spent a lot of time this offseason sort of looking in the mirror at how he was doing things, maybe overdoing things at times. He added some weight. His frame looks a lot better, but it's more about, you know, how do I do this smarter? How do I not injure myself? Like, I think he gets it. He's been banged up far too much, needs to be on the field, and, I mean, he needs to hit. As much as we're talking about, you know, this season for O'Neal Cruz being about proving that he can field, should be about Key Brian Hayes proving that he can hit. So far, so good. I've liked what I've seen in spring. Um, a big mechanism with him is how well he hits the fastball. I know it's an overly simple concept, but if he's not hitting it, generally he's struggling at the plate. He's been pretty timed up this year. Has taken a few swings that have been like, wow, okay, you know, inside heat, 96, 97. He's getting around on it and driving it poolside. I've liked what I've seen there. Uh, he's a really good kid. He works his tail off. I can say a whole bunch of nice things about him personally, but yeah, I mean, he, he, for, for what his contract is in Pittsburgh, which I realize it doesn't mean that much elsewhere, but like he's looked to, to produce offensively. They need him in the heart of the order, and he just hasn't been good enough offensively the past couple of years. So you mentioned Brian Reynolds a minute ago, and when you started your spring training preview about a month ago, you let it off with, as you said, the elephant in the room, Brian Reynolds which is not an insult uh, about Ryan Reynolds and his uh, elephantine appearance or anything. It's just about how important (laughs) that story is. So what does it say about the organization, first of all, that he wants a trade? And how do you think this resolves? Will there be an extension? Will they pay him? And if not, does a trade make sense? And when might one happen? Yeah, this is so, this has been so weird, Ben. Uh, You know, since the Reynolds trade request came out in December, I did not expect to be getting that phone call that day. So that that comes out. And I mean, it's not because Reynolds is upset with Pittsburgh and anything like that. I mean, he explained this on the first day that he talked and basically said he saw his value one way. The Pirates see his value another. I think the communication process through all of this has been not good, borderline abysmal, where Reynolds feels like their six-year, $80 million offer is like take it or leave it. And they're not thinking that way. Meanwhile, Reynolds is asking for eight and one thirty-four. Like it's, you know, they're they're very far apart. But at the same time, then you have Bob Nutting. I talked to him, Pirates owner, a little bit ago at Pirate City about like they they value Reynolds, they respect him, they feel like there's middle ground, blah blah blah. Well, if there's middle ground, get it done. If there's middle ground, get it done. We, you know, if you say you want to sign Brian Reynolds, sign Brian Reynolds. Like I, I genuinely believe he wants to be here, but. They haven't gotten, I, I am, you know, I, I sort of look at this and, and knowing both sides, like it, it got pretty testy. The organization was not thrilled about the leaked trade request. The Reynolds side was not thrilled about how the organization has basically failed to pay him, which I understand. Reynolds is not asking for a king's ransom. I do think that they can come together and get something done and it wouldn't shock me if it happened. Um, I think the time to get it done would probably be like in the next couple of weeks. I think if if it goes much longer, you're probably looking at, you know, they're just going to relax until the trade deadline and see if there are offers. If you pin me down and make me say one way or the other, though, Ben, I I do think they'll inevitably get something done. I think Reynolds will take less than the original ask, and I do think he wants to be here. So if they secure him, then, you know, you have Cruz, you have Reynolds, you have Hayes. 
And one place that I'd maybe like to look is is at the catching position. You mentioned that like Austin Hedges is not their solution for the future. We do respect a catcher who can frame, but hopefully you get something a bit better out of a catcher's bat than than Hedges offers. But their situation beyond that is interesting to me. They have a number of non-roster invitees on the veteran side. Their only other catcher, I believe, who's on the 40-man at this moment is Andy Rodriguez, and then they also have Henry Davis. What do you see that sort of balance being both this year and in the future? Are there is there a chance that we see Andy this year? Do you imagine that we see Davis at some point? How are they thinking about that position going forward? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting thing and probably like bigger than the Pirates a little bit and and how teams handle their rosters. And this is what the Pirates are going for. Like I think best case scenario they would have Henry Davis win the starting job and then they take Andy, Andy Rodriguez and bounce him around. Um, Henry's probably the better defensive catcher. He's caught all of his life, although Andy has too. He's just started to bounce around, play other positions. He's probably the more athletic of the two. To touch a, an earlier point, Meg, I, you'll see people in Pittsburgh will see both of them this season. I fully expect them to make their MLB debuts. But like how this works beyond hedges, I think, again, what the Pirates would be sort of going for, how they hope this ends, Henry Davis becomes their number one. And Andy is sort of the backup that kind of bounces. You know, maybe like a Dalton Varsho situation where he catches two days a week, plays a little second base, plays a little first base, a little outfield, whatever. And I mean, I, it, it has sort of caused me to think differently about roster construction and ma- maximizing spots. And, you know, I think they are as well. Like where you used to have this traditional Chris Stewart type backup catcher that like would catch bullpens. He'd be good with pitchers. He'd be a solid receiver. He could do this, that, and the other. But you really... You know, it's kind of a dead zone when it comes to offense. And, you know, with these two guys, and especially with Endy, I mean, he's, he's really come on late and made his way up prospect boards and, and all that stuff. I mean, you would hope that that continues and he adds offense. And when we're talking about a premium offensive player who's also a backup catcher. And I just, you know, could teams do that more? I don't know. But I, I think that's sort of the thinking here in Pittsburgh. So let's talk about the McCutcheon acquisition, reacquisition. How did this reunion come together? What were the main motivations on both sides? And are the Pirates approaching this just sort of as a sentimental farewell tour? Or are they thinking and are is McCutcheon thinking that he can be a, a really good player again? Yeah, this is a funky one. So this is how it came together. The Pirates were, you know, honestly, I don't think they wanted to bring McCutcheon here and like screw him over with playing time. An opportunity. And I, I don't think they, you know, I don't think they thought that what he could get elsewhere would make sense for him to come back here. So they kind of didn't even flirt with it. Ben Charrington said they sort of like monitored his free agency or whatever, and probably just thought that, well, he's going to have other options that are better than us. And we can't really offer that much, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so this drags on until after New Year's. And I think a day or two after New Year's, McCutcheon obviously still hasn't signed anything and sent Bob Nutting a text and said, he wanted to come back. And that sort of fired off a, a chain of conversations where Nutting goes to Charrington and, and basically says, like, is there a fit here? Can we make this work? And Charrington thinks about it, talks to McCutcheons, like, yes, we can we can make this work. And, you know, I think part of it is the Pirates certainly wanting to be respectful to, like, you know, their most popular player since Barry Bonds, I would argue, and, you know, wanting to do the right thing, which is to bring McCutcheon back. Like, I, I've covered this team since 2019, And I don't know if I've seen a more positive storyline or something that just like universally makes people smile than Andrew McCutcheon. There's been a lot that has made people mad, but they needed something that actually made people happy and reminded them of like being fans. 
So anyway, what they're looking at with Kutch, and it's it's not just a reunion tour. Like, they legit think he can play. I don't necessarily disagree with them. Like, he's not going to be Kutch of 2012 through 15 or anything like that. doesn't need to be. He's probably going to play 110, 120 games, somewhere in that range, if all goes according to plan. And, you know, half of those in the outfield, half of those as DH. And he's been really good, you know, a lot like Hill or Hedges or Carlos Santana or whatever. Like, he's just been really good with younger guys and has been pretty open about saying, like, look, there are challenges in Pittsburgh. We know it, but I was a part of a group that got through it. I was a part of a group that won, you know, despite everybody on the outside telling us what we can't do. Why can't this group do it? Like, I see it in this group. I, you know, whether he's he's right or not, I don't know. But, I mean, if, if you're a young guy trying to put this thing together and trying to do what that 13, 14, 15 group did, I'm going to listen to Andrew McCutcheon, and I think they have. So I, mean, I think he's been really good for the team. Results-wise, they're obviously going to want him to produce because, again, I do think they think he can play baseball. So can talk a little bit about the young pitching now. I mean, we on Effectively Wild could talk about Rich Hill for a really long time, but I feel like I could too, have... by the way. Boy, has he been <laughs> tremendous. Oh. Yeah, but I, I think our listeners have a good sense of him. Maybe we can start at the top of that rotation with Mitch Keller. My understanding is that he started throwing a sinker a, a good deal more last year, fewer four-seamers. And you're right that he is, you know, He's not an ace by the traditional definition, but he had a respectable year, certainly a step forward compared to his 2021. So what are their expectations for him? And is there further tinkering in the mix for him to try to unlock something now? Yeah, so so Mitch throws six pitches now. I don't know if that'll stick for the regular season, but he's he's been experimenting a little bit. He's one of the billions around baseball it seems like that has split apart his slider he's now throwing a sweeper and more of a cutter variation which i get so he started throwing the sinker last year and this is a really interesting story for us locally but you know basically was just out of options was getting whacked around first seven starts or something like that last year was down frustrated they moved him to the bullpen and of all people dewey robinson who was a, a pitching you know consultant guru whatever in tampa has done a lot with the rays he had come over to the organization and sort of looked at Keller's four-seamer and said, like, this is too flat. Like, this is just not a pitch that's going to, you know, produce the results we want. Like, you need something else. And so, you know, they went to Keller. I guess Keller, he had, he had spent the previous offseason at Tread, and his guy there had, had told him, like, hey, you should try throwing this sinker. And so the two sides linked up about, you know, what, what would this be like throwing a sinker? And so he did, started throwing at the end of May, and his ERA the rest of the way, stayed in the rotation, made every start. It was like three and change. And it really worked for him. It was just another option. Kept him off his fastball. Gave him a little bit of confidence. And that's just something like Mitch, sort of like the way Glasnow was here, was just a mental mess. And Glasnow had to go somewhere else to figure it out. And the Pirates, to their credit, helped him figure it out here. And he's been a different guy since. You know, I expect him to be their opening day starter. I expect him to, you know, the slider and... uh, He's calling it like a gyro cutter. I don't know. There are too many names to track, but um, <laughs> the pitch mix has looked really good. Velocity's good. But most of all, he's just like, just such a different guy. You know, he, he just, poor Mitch was like beaten down a couple of years ago trying to figure this thing out. And I finally think that he's got a little bit of, a little bit of swagger to him and it's worked. 
And it seems like the Pirates are one of the teams that has joined this uh, train of of just throw strikes, right? Just throw pitches in the zone. This is something that the Rays really popularized. The Orioles adopted last year, and they could use some more strikes. They had one of the highest walk rates in their staff last year. So the idea just seems to be, hey, so many pitchers have got great stuff today. Just trust it. So what dividends have you seen from that so far? Yeah, it sounds like my dad when I was 12 years old yelling throw strikes. And I'm on the mound <laughs> like, what do you think I'm trying to do? No. <laughs> but it, it's it's been a conversation around here a lot, Ben. I'm sure a lot of teams do this, but there's a sheet of paper when you walk in the clubhouse of the Pirates' in-zone percentage. Like They want them to know you know, what your in-zone percentage was last year. And we talked to the pitching coach, Oscar Marine, I don't know, two weeks ago now, something like that. And um, the first question I, I asked him was like, what do you want the identity of this staff to be? And he, he said, that's a good question. We want them to smother teams in the zone. Like that's exactly what the Pirates are going for. Rays, Orioles, whomever. I mean, it's not a difficult concept, but like they want guys to challenge them with their best stuff. That's worked really well with Keller. I think it's worked really well with Rowanzi Contreras. It's something that Rich Hill has talked to these guys about a lot. Like, Trust your stuff, man. It's good enough. Like, I think that's something that Hill does better than anybody here. And you guys have probably talked to him a lot about over the years. Just, you know, don't give these guys too much credit. Throw it over the plate. Make them put it in play. Uh, And the Pirates, believe me, I've seen a lot of poorly pitched games over the past handful of years where they're nibbling. They can't get in the zone. Um, It has been different this spring. It really has. They're not afraid to challenge teams. And we'll see how it goes. But I like the philosophy. I want to ask about a guy who actually isn't either on the 40-man or or projected to be in the opening day rotation, which is Quinn Priester, one of the starters who I imagine they hope will be part of their next good core. I know he has that incredible curveball. The rest of the arsenal is a little bit mixed. What have you observed from Priester in camp so far, and when do you think he might make his debut? Yeah, he's a fun one. Uh, I like Q a lot. Uh, He's a really good kid, and he's another one that you know, keeps adding pitches. I think he's up to five or six now. Like it started out with the curveball and over COVID, he added a slider and throwing a sinker and his changeup has gotten actually usable at this point. It used to be just like, you know, a, a project goofy pitch to like get him drafted or whatever. But the thing about Priester that I've noticed the most last year, he was like quiet, somewhat intimidated, nervous. Like you could tell he was kind of like, I don't want to do anything to screw up, you know, am I going the right way? Like he feels like he belongs and not in a bad way. It's just like, you know, he's starting to really grow into himself mentally, physically. He's throwing obviously hard. His stuff is really good. I don't, I don't question his stuff at all, but you know, going after guys uh, to what Ben said earlier, like I think he's one that has really benefited from the idea of trust my stuff, attack. He pitched yesterday in Sarasota. I believe that was yesterday, but like, Every time he's taken the mound, it has been this attack, fill up the zone. We're not dancing. Um, And he did that a lot last year and got himself into trouble. Either got himself hit or got himself into walk trouble. I think we'll see him this summer. I really do. It would be a quick, you know, in and out of AAA. He's only made two starts there. But I think this kid has the makeup to do it. I really do. And I see the way this rotation could go. I mean, they could probably... Rich Hill's probably not going to be here for long. Who knows what happens with Vince Velasquez? I think they could probably get enticed into trading him if, if this works out. They're going to have some rotation spots available. Mike Burroughs is another prospect I think I'd, I'd keep an eye on that they could bring up. But wouldn't shock me at all if Priester ended up in Pittsburgh. 
And you've written a fair amount about the player development overhaul since the Huntington Searage days. So now that the Charrington and John Baker regime has been in place for a while, what have you seen about the Pirates' approach to player development? How do you think they stack up to some of the other leading teams in that realm across the league? Yeah. So there, I, I think there are a few sort of like pillars or precepts or, or things that I would use to describe their player development situation. One is not being as rigid as the former group. And I think that regime, how do I say this nicely, um, complicated the development of Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now much more than they needed to. Um, you're looking at a guy that, you know, throws 98 with a hammer curve and you're having him throw sinkers. Like I, I don't understand it. You know, you're pulling Austin Meadows up and down, like just let him play. They're young players, like let them, let them get the experience. And, you know, what they tried to do is, is just this like cookie cutter philosophy and treating a lot of guys the same and thinking, you know, this is what we're going to do and you're going to adhere to what we're going to do as opposed to, you know, this is the type of player you are. We're going to let you be that type of player. And so Baker and company has been really good with that. They're extremely player oriented. If that's the the way you put it, that's kind of the, the, the way they phrase it. And I'm good with it. They've been able to really go out and get some talent. I give them a lot of credit for it quickly. I think fans in Pittsburgh who were upset, and I understand why, like they want all that talent immediately to coalesce in the major league level. And it's just like, that's that's not realistic. But I look at the minor league system where they were at the start of this thing versus where they are now. And they've done a good job of having talent, you know, double A up to triple A. Some guys at high A going to double A. Uh, rookie ball, now we're seeing them in low A. Like these different pockets of, of guys that should come up and influence things. And, you know, it's been a lot better for sure. The ultimate results are obviously going to be when they get up to the majors. But I, I like the individualized stuff that they've done. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about where the farm system stands. I I think various uh, sites and outlets, uh, BP and Baseball America, I think have the Pirates 11th now, their farm system rankings. Kylie McDaniel at 9th, Keith Law at 6th. So there's a a bit of a range. Obviously, they're in the top half, but the Pirates can't just have a good system. They have to have a great system. They really have to hit on guys, what with the miserliness of ownership, right? They need these prospects to pan out and produce. So is it too soon to project whether they will get the success rate that they want? You know, not just depth, but also superstar blue chip types? Yeah, I mean, to me, they're in they're in the right zip code. Can they stand to improve more? Absolutely. I feel like that stuff kind of changes relatively quickly. Um, you, you hit on the right number of kids. But I mean, to me, they're in the acceptable range that they're going to have enough players to come up and impact the major league club. Um, I completely agree with you. Like, it's not optional to go any lower than they are, given, you know, th- their spending habits and the financial landscape that they deal with. But I, yeah, I mean, it's enough. You'd like more. I don't think it's a problem. I think they've had some guys that have, you know, probably not realized their potential, but I don't think they're bad players. And I guess to talk in specific names, so it doesn't sound like I'm talking in circles, like Nick Gonzalez is a number one pick in 2020 who hasn't been able to stay healthy when he's been healthy. He's been good. Um, He goes up to AAA and, you know, at one point he was their top prospect. Goes up to AAA this year and actually produces. I think that could change the system's ranking in a hurry. Leover Pugero is another kid who's been drastically different over the past year and has also dealt with a lot of injuries. Like he should be performing better than he is. Tamar Johnson, their number one overall prospect, P 
period has only played like 20-some games. So I look at that and think, well, there's three of their top six guys that could get off to really strong starts, and then it's going to change the whole complexion of their system. Like that's easily going to drag them into like six or seven range. And if that, I'm good with it. You know, and they're going to have another high draft pick. I like, I mean, high, high as in 1-1. I I should say that. (laughs) Uh, Can't get much higher. But no, they've added talent. And to me, it's, it's plenty to where this is developable. I don't, able to be developed. Let's go with that. um, (laughs) To be a competent major league team. Do you think that they will get to a point where they perhaps contemplate consolidating some of that system depth to trade for impact big leaguers? Like how far out are they from contemplating something like that? What do they view as sort of their horizon for competition? Yeah, I don't think it'll be this year, Megan. I know what you're talking about, um, where they maybe see a little bit more of a window. I think next year, most optimistically, they might consider it. Just once you, I mean, I would say once you have too many people for the positions that you have and they're just not there yet. And then you're looking at the major league club that you're going to be legitimately competitive and they're not there yet. I, ideally, I say I would say 2024. Like I look at this year's team and think if they win 74, 75, 76 games, that would be a very good step forward for them and show that the process in this thing is working. You know, the earliest any sort of like we're going to consolidate talent and funnel that into the major league product, the earliest that would possibly make sense would be 2024. And I'd, I'd even think maybe like the 2024 deadline. Like if they get off to a pretty strong start next season and you say, okay, well, you know, we're in a different spot here. We've got some good young kids and this is the way this should work. But I just, you know, they don't even have the surplus to trade yet. And I wouldn't, it it would certainly would feel useless to me to even do it because you're not going for anything. Well, you anticipated our standard closing question here with uh, your comment a second ago about the win total range. We've shifted away from asking for a win total prediction to asking basically what would constitute a successful season for this team. How should you define success? And I think it's maybe a more interesting question with the teams that are playoff long shots because the answer isn't just make the playoffs or win some playoff games. It's uh, more nuanced or, or granular. So other than, I guess, not losing 100 games again, what can the Pirates do to make this a, at least a, a qualified relative success? Oh, dear God, don't lose 100 games. I don't want to deal with those emails <laughs> and the vitriol and, and whatever. No, I like for this to be a success, I, I think you need a win total that starts with a seven. I think they need to see some of the offseason moves actually work. Um, and by that, I mean, like have some of these guys produce, play noticeable roles on the team impact younger players and, you know, maybe get flipped for something at the deadline or gasp. Maybe they hold on to some of them and like re-sign them to another contract. I look for this team too. And again, this is a very optimistic scenario, whatever, but like, you know, to come out of the gates pretty strong and and to have a good first half and surprise some people and get people excited. Like, yeah, they're probably going to fall off because they don't have the necessary depth. All right, whatever. But, you know, to at least have like young kids grow up in a way that it's meaningful toward results to just get rid of the cloud of negativity that has has sort of existed around this franchise for a number of years and just show people that what they're doing now is working and they don't need playoffs they don't need you know all that stuff is way down the road but like i said 74 75 76 wins done the right way would be fantastic for what this city's dealing with right now 
All right. Well, you can find out if the Pirates do that by following Jason's coverage in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette all season long. You can also find him on Twitter at jmackiepg. Always a pleasure to have you on for the Pirates previews. I don't know if the Pirates previews are always a pleasure for Pirates fans, <laughs> but, but always <laughs> Better happy to now talk than to they've you. been, you yeah. know, in a while, right? That's true. Yeah, That's progress. True. This right. is our, what, third one. I would say this is the, the least pessimistic one we've done, although that's a yeah. very low bar. Uh, it's all relative. Thank you, as always, Jason. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so let's do the pass blast here. And this pass blast comes to us from the year 1979, corresponding to our episode number here. Also comes to us from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And David writes, 1979 baseball spurns gambling affiliations. How times have changed. In January 1979, Willie Mays was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, earning more than 94% of possible votes. Nine months later, he was banned from the game of baseball. In October 1979, Mays accepted a job with Bally's Park Place Hotel, a casino in Atlantic City, signing on for 10 years and an estimated $1 million. Mays' role at the casino as special assistant to the president was reportedly focused on outreach, not promoting gambling. A UPI article quoted Mays as saying, I'll have nothing to do with the gambling end of it. They need me for community work to tell the people, citizens of Atlantic City, we don't want your land, that we're trying to contribute something instead. Baseball Commissioner Bowie Kuhn informed Mays that he would have to disassociate himself from baseball if he took the job, meaning that Mays had to resign from his post as a special hitting instructor for the New York Mets. Mays was upset with the ruling, saying, Baseball has been very good to me, and I've been very good to baseball. I just hope I don't have to stay out all my life. Just going out on the field sometimes means a great deal to me. Some people retire and don't miss the game, but I do. Mays ultimately decided that taking the job was in the best interest of himself and his family and cut his ties with the game of baseball. Several years later, in 1983, Mickey Mantle met the same fate when he accepted a job with Atlantic City's Claridge Casino Hotel, both legends were ultimately reinstated by Commissioner Peter Uberoth in 1985. And David notes that this might be a slightly better known story than some past blasts, but in an age in which professional sports in general have begun to welcome sports books with open arms, it is nice to remember a world in which merely associating with a casino was frowned upon and led to being banned from the sport. So, yeah, sometimes you hear people say that it's hypocritical of MLB to ban players from even betting. And I don't think it is exactly. Mm -hmm. I think they still have to draw that line, yes. right, in the interests of the integrity of the yes. game. But, yeah, it's discordant when you have the league at the same time promoting everything. And, and that is the yes. real difference here where in 1979 or even in the early 80s you had – absolute all-time legends of the game and great figures who you would want associated and around the ballpark like Willie Mays and you ban them for baseball just because they're promoting a casino and not even really directly involved in gambling. I mean, that's how things have changed because right. uh, obviously now it's open season on that. Yeah, I would be fine. I would be fine with players and anyone else affiliated with the team continuing to not be able to bet and Major League Baseball having far less to do with betting. And then, you know, if a guy wants to be a, I don't want to say greeter, because that sounds, but, you know, <laughs> like, I, I think that these are importantly different behaviors and associations than, like, 
a player or a person affiliated with an org in an active way, even if it is sort of a tertiary role, having, you know, doing, doing the bets like that, that's, we got to, we can't open that door. I think that door has to remain closed, even if they're betting for their team to win, still got to draw that line. But, you know, mm-hmm. the rest of it, I, I it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with the players getting their cut when the league is obviously getting right. its cut. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that it's great for society as a whole that right. uh, that anyone's getting that cut. Maybe, right. and and we've seen that countries, uh, European countries, other countries that were ahead of the U.S. when it came to legalizing gambling, they have begun to just uh, you know reap the the consequences, yeah. right, and and have begun to ban certain types of of advertising, right? Like uh, just today I saw that Belgium had banned gambling advertisement as of this July. You won't be able to advertise gambling in TV, radio, movie theaters, magazines, newspapers, and in public spaces and also online advertising too. And then as of 2025, there will be a ban on advertising in stadiums. And then in January 2028, you will no longer have uh, gambling companies able to sponsor professional sports teams, right? So, and the government that endorsed this ban argued that there had been a lot of research as there has showing that advertising encourages gambling addiction and gambling debt and all these things. So you're seeing that in these other countries that were ahead of us on the timeline starting to pull back and say, "Uh uh-oh, and we can't have celebrities and sports figures endorsing these things. And so you might project and say, well, the same number of years down the line, those measures will be introduced in the U.S. too, but I don't know that I have that much confidence <laughs> that that's yeah. the case and that anyone will ever turn off this spigot, right? And and obviously, like, there would be consequences for the media and sports media too, right, if, if all of those advertising dollars went away too. So there could be uh, not-so-great consequences, but there are also not-so-great consequences of, of just being bombarded by this messaging all the time, at least for people who are susceptible to it yeah I, I we've talked before about like you know i i'm hesitant to be like overly paternalistic with this stuff i do think that there's a lot we don't understand about how the the technology interface exacerbates sort of underlying issues folks might have around restraint with this stuff mostly like i could just stand to be less relentlessly advertised to in general mm-hmm. like this advertising certainly stands out to me as particularly annoying because i just don't get i don't care i don't <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. So it grates in a special kind of way. But like, what if we were just advertised to less, you know, like everywhere. Effectively wild. At all. You know, like what if that was just not, you know, and Mm -hmm. or at least it should take longer, you know, like the the speed of the algo is so disconcerting, man, because you Google Mm -hmm. something and then it's instantly on your instagram and you're like let me pretend i've at least stumbled upon this organically like you're you're ripping away the artifice in a way that i find really obnoxious right. you know lie to me a little bit wait you're advertising you're already doing that <laughs> yeah. <Rat. laughs> all right let me give everyone the trivia answers to the questions mm-hmm. i posed in the intro so the all-time head-to-head record the astros and the pirates 
The Pirates have the upper hand in that one, 366 and 343 all-time against the Astros. That is courtesy of the website StatMuse. And then I will also give you courtesy of frequent StatBlast consultant Ryan Nelson the player answers here. So the highest war batters, this is career war batters who have ever played for these two teams, Astros and Pirates. Number one, Kenny Lofton. The well-known Astro and Pirate Kenny Lofton, who (laughs) played, I think, a total of 104 games for those two franchises, Uh, not really associated with either of them. I guess Kenny Lofton might be known as the one who got away from the Astros, the fact that they traded him, but their tenures with those teams, not particularly notable. So Kenny Lofton and then Moises Alou, Phil Garner, Tony Pena, Ken Ogerfell. And then the pitchers, we have Jerry Royce is number one. Danny Darwin, Doug Drabeck, Eric Bedard, and Wandy Rodriguez. And then as for the first players ever to play for both franchises, there were actually two former Pirates on the inaugural Astros slash Colt 45s expansion team, mm. catcher Hal Smith and outfielder Roman Mejias. They were both picked in the expansion draft. And then the first pitcher to play for both was Jack LaMabe, who was traded from the Red Sox to the Astros in September 65 and pitched three games for the Astros before leaving the following offseason. He had played with the Pirates in 62. So there are your trivia answers for today. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. And for Dylan Higgins, our editor and producer, our longtime assistant and collaborator on this podcast. He has done hundreds and hundreds of episodes over the past several years. It was very difficult for me to surrender being the sole editor of Effectively Wild after doing that for so many years and so many episodes. I just felt like who is going to invest the time and effort and care into this that I would as one of the hosts and founders of the show. And Dylan Dylan's commitment and attention to detail reassured me, gave me the confidence to slightly loosen my grip on the reins. I will miss the late night G-chats about background sounds and audio levels and filler words. We've got a pretty small operation over here and he's been a big part of it. We've been in constant contact every week about scheduling and logistics and edits and it has been a pleasure to work with him. He has been flexible and available and diligent and he cares what this show sounds like. It wasn't just any old assignment for him. He really cares about the product. Same goes for Fangraphs Audio, and we will miss working with him. We wish him well in his post-Effectively Wild and Fangraphs life. Our episodes are substantial as it is, but they would be longer if not for Dylan saving you all countless minutes and hours over the years by trimming out ums and stumbles and crosstalk and background noise. I'd liken it to the baseball pace of play length of game conversation. We do a lot of episodes. They're lengthy episodes, and so it's important to cut out the dead air. Keep the conversation moving. We pride ourselves on delivering as clean and smooth and pleasant a listening experience as we can here at Effectively Wild, and Dylan has been a big part of that. And I would direct everyone to his last episode of Fangraphs Audio, which will be up on Friday morning and features Ben Clemens talking to Dylan about his career, how he wound up at Fangraphs and ended up doing what he's done. I would imagine that after editing us for so long, maybe he might need a break just having our voices in his head 
head ringing around his brain. Perhaps it would be hard not to be a backseat editor for a while too, but he's made a contribution to every episode he's edited, right down to today's, especially with team previews and guests who have varying sound setups, to put it charitably. And I guess Meg will need to learn a new name now before she does a swear. So one last time, thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And if you want to keep up with him, you can find him on Twitter at DHHiggins. Also, thanks to everyone who applied to be Dylan's successor. We got a ton of interest, a lot of great candidates, and we really appreciate all the thoughtful emails and the resumes and just wanted to say that we have found a successor, the next editor of Effectively Wild, who will be starting next week. So no need to apply for that position at this point. It has been filled, but it's a big headset to fill thanks to Dylan's tireless work. The team preview pods will continue next week with the Rays and the Tigers, followed by the Mets and the Athletics. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jonathan Stevens, Max Twine, Patrick Green, Mark Rohan, and Arthur. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. Just roll up and we will lower the velvet rope and let you in. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes and discounts on ad-free Fangrass memberships and merch and other great goodies. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week.